Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 64. So, gentlemen, today there's we want to talk about dynamic programming in Swift because it's made quite a quite a splash this this topic has over the last week. And there's so much other stuff going on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely the calm before the storm. We'll have a whole lot of stuff to talk about in two weeks. Hopefully, yeah. Probably better. Or, or we'll be talking about what we're not talking about. <laughs> so, was it Brent Simmons, Brent Simmons that sparked this topic, or yeah. how did it begin? As far as I know, it started with Brent just kind of posting what he would like to see in Swift in terms of dynamic language features and, you know, why he thought it was valuable. Uh, but he also, you know, reiterated that he loves programming in Swift. Uh, you know, he gets grumpy when he has to program in Objective-C. But if you don't know Brent, he's been around for quite a while in this space. Uh, he's worked on a lot of fairly well-known app, apps like uh, Vesper. I think he worked on NetNewsWire. I'm not mistaken. Mars like, Edit. <laughs> Mars Edit. I he yep. uh, also works at Panic now full time. Uh, he's good at selling his apps. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, he's you know he's definitely you know been around. Um, very familiar with Objective C. He's done a lot of Mac apps as well as some iOS apps. I think most of his experience has been on the Mac side. But you know certainly not somebody who is. Uh, new or or early in their careers so he's you know speaking from experience and he has a, a lot of good points about language features that we have in Objective-C that we don't have in Swift and you know today you've got to pretty much fall back to the Objective-C runtime in order to get Swift to have any of these dynamic features which makes it difficult for Swift to be a standalone language Right. So one of the things people have said is that even though you haven't written a single line of Objective-C in your app, and your, you can't really claim that it's not a pure Swift app because it runs on all kinds of languages like C, C++, and especially Objective-C. Right. And, you know, if you, as we start talking about Swift on Linux and, you know, the future of Swift as an open source language... Uh, you know, there's so much that we get from the Objective-C runtime that just doesn't exist uh, when you're running Swift on Linux or out, outside of, you know, our typical environment. Uh, so things like KVO uh, is is something you don't get for free. And you basically have to re-implement something yourself if you want that kind of uh, functionality. So I would say for KVO, to some degree, that's that problem has been solved in Swift by people like the, the Reactive Cocoa people and the RX Swift people, where that's just a subject that publishes events to any subscribers. Now, it's not completely transparent like KVO would be, but it is a, a fairly effective workaround. Yeah, the nice thing about KVO is it can be a little bit more decoupled. We use it pretty heavily in our apps. We have a lot of that and just the pure message passing and listening for messages and it's it's nice that the the things that are generating the messages and 
kind of uh, receiving the messages don't really have to know about each other. Right. So I remember when Swift first came out and I learned that it was a um, statically typed language and had a static dispatch and there were no more message passing. And that really made me take a step back and rethink whether I wanted to even adopt Swift at first. And it took me a while to, to warm up to the idea. Yeah, it was kind of kind of off-putting in some ways that Swift didn't have reflection built in as this first-class citizen. I mean, there was there's a little bit of reflection that you can get out of Swift, but you know, nothing where you can really um, evaluate the structure of a class or a function at runtime in a clean way. Uh, so it kind of made the idea of building frameworks you know, things like uh, injection frameworks, uh, a lot more difficult using Swift as, as the language. Yeah, so I kind of take that as, well, that's a more of a metaprogramming topic rather than, say, a dynamic programming idea. And so, like, a, a metaprogramming would be being able to do reflection and acting on the types that you're passed in a certain way versus a dynamic programming where in Objective-C, you can method swizzle something. So you could totally overwrite the implementation of a stock method. In the Ruby world, they call that monkey patching. Or you could open up a class and work some magic on it that way. And I remember, Argo, the first time I tried something like that, you basically slapped my hand and said, don't do that. But that's kind of the background where I've, I've come from. And I know you got to be careful about that kind of thing. Oh yeah, you were trying to swizzle, weren't you? Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, generally, I, yeah, I think most people came to the conclusion that method swizzling is a a technique of last resort. You know, whether yeah. it's to yeah. patch something that's broken um, in a third party library or or uh, in the in foundation or something that that you can't change directly, uh, but usually that would bite you later on. Right, uh, and method swizzling has been used for for some other things. Like there are some dependency injection frameworks out there that I think use method swizzling in order to to get things done. Um, you know, reflection can be yeah in Java is kind of nice because we can build some higher order frameworks using reflection to to inspect whether an object implements an annotation or a method implements an annotation and you know it could be injecting dependencies into that class or constructor or it could be enforcing some sort of security policies based on an annotation uh, using like a dynamic proxy or something like that um, at the moment those types of frameworks are pretty much off the table for us in Swift and you could argue do we do we, do we need them or not and, and you know, I, I think that's part of the debate. You know, there are more than one way to accomplish the same goals, and you need to make the language dynamic in order to, um, you know, get that to accomplish the goals that you want that you would accomplish normally with dynamic language features. And then trade-off being you, you, know, the dynamic features make it make it more, uh, you know, impact performance and uh, potentially make it easier to introduce bugs like KVO and KVC is all like string based programming. 
So it, it's arguably very easy to have a typo cause a major bug that will crash your app. Yeah, those, those types of things require a lot of testing, a lot of careful coding. And honestly, any kind of dynamic programming requires a, a lot of good unit tests to it. And that, that's, people have always said, well, I've got the compiler. It's making sure my types are good. So I don't need to worry so much. But with you, <laughs> which is always a fallacy, you know, mm -hmm. the, the fact that it compiles doesn't mean it works. You shouldn't commit that code. But the, the testing part, you have to be very careful and very uh, aggressive with your unit testing code when you're doing any kind of dynamic programming. And with the KVC, the key value coding, you know, you can be putting long strings, you know, dot delimited strings in your interface file. That's, you know, it's not even in code. Uh, so, you know, you could definitely run into scenarios where you could have a typo there or you rename a property and uh, not realize you broke something. So it, it definitely can lead to more fragile code. Yeah. And, you know, the one thing that always bugged me was I could add an observer, I could remove an observer, but I couldn't query the list of observers. And so I ended up always having to keep track of whether the observer was added in a separate place rather than on that object itself. Yeah. And at the moment, KVO is very fragile. If you try to deallocate an object that still has an observer attached to it, it will crash your app. Yes. And it, they, they used to be true for NS notifications as well, but they realized that, you know, they changed the implementation so it wouldn't cause a crash if you forgot to remove the observer. It would just do some cleanup on its own on the DNet. Uh, I wish uh, KVO was the same way. Because, like you said, there's no way to really inspect who's Do I have an observer? Can I get a handle to it and force it to uh, be removed from the list? Uh, so I feel like you normally want to do KVO in a more kind of a local sense than you do with like a notification though. It's, it should be, it shouldn't be spread out as much. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. But <laughs> it's, so hopefully it's easier to manage. Maybe not. <laughs> well, I mean, KVO is the nice thing about, you know, KVO, you can have multiple observers to the same property. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's other ways of implementing that. You can have like a mediator pattern or observer pattern. You know, like Sam mentioned earlier, you know, some of these newer frameworks like RX Swift or Reactive Cocoa in a lot of ways implement that pattern uh, without the same side effect. They have other side effects perhaps, but uh, you can live without KVO because there's other implementations that do essentially the same thing. Yeah. Well, I think if you are having more than one or two dots inside of your your uh, pattern string that you're probably observing just a little bit too deeply into that into that class right and on the on on the mac you've had you had uh, cocoa bindings and that had been around for a long time and for whatever reason they chose not to port that over to iOS and i wonder if it's you know internally they they believe that there was too much of a downside to having the, the core bindings, uh, Cocoa bindings, as a common pattern. And, and My initial was other impression was that it was a performance issue. Uh, I mean, especially in like the iPhone 3G and original iPhone days. I mean, there's lots of stuff we didn't have back then. Yeah, I mean, this kind of 
predates like core data wasn't there uh and, and i kind of assumed that core bindings would have or cocoa bindings would have come over with core data uh, but it didn't but you know it, i i think to that point you know most of these dynamic language features means that you're doing dynamic dispatch which has some degree of overhead and and can impact your performance and you know swift in a large part was designed to be fast and as well as safe so that string based programming is is arguably not safe so several years ago as i was getting out of the .net space they were just adding this whole dynamic keyword and in preparation for our conversation tonight, I went back and did a Google search today in preparation for our conversation. And the only articles I could really find about the dynamic keyword were all written about five or six years ago. And there's nothing else after that. So I think they did it. It was all the rage for a little bit and it's gone. So they must have done something else that worked for them. No. Maybe that's a combination of reflection and and some other metaprogramming techniques. I don't know. To some degree, it's, it's kind of like aspect-oriented programming uh, that came in with Java, and you know, it it was going to be the next way of programming. You know, it was this you know changing the way you you do things today, and you were going to build these higher-level solutions based on this dynamic uh, way of of programming where basically have bytecode being written for you. Um, but that pretty much came and went, you know, in a relatively short period of time. There's still bits and pieces here and there to accomplish some common things in Java, but generally aspect-oriented program became you know, kind of like method swizzling in Objective-C. It's And there's a lot of similarities there. It's like you have this tool when you absolutely need it, but, but it's definitely a last resort solution. Is it becomes a lot more difficult to maintain and and adds a lot of conceptual overhead and doesn't always add a lot of value. Yeah, do you think the fact that Java got annotations helped out with that? Yeah, I think to a large degree like having having the ability to create your own annotations and reflect on that I think helped a tremendous amount and Swift has annotations but it doesn't have the ability to create a custom annotation and it doesn't have the reflection. So you don't necessarily need like metaprogramming to you know, be able to build on top of annotations and reflection in terms of like adding behavior, to, dynamic behavior to an application. But you know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these third party dependency injection frameworks use macros and method swizzling in order to do injection where you could do it fairly in a fairly type safe way if you can say what type of object does this uh, init expect to be injected into it and we just can't do that today yeah i'm not as worried about having dependency injection typically when i write a class i'll, I'll make a constructor that has a convenience no arg constructor and it just goes and gets its dependencies what? And then I'll write another one that takes all of the dependencies in, as in a constructor so that I can then unit test it. Right. And, you know, we have manual dependency injection with the exception right. of few controllers that are constructed by a storyboard. There's not a, not necessarily a clean way of 
doing constructor injection into a view controller right in that model but that's what interface builders for it's like the ultimate dependency injection framework <laughs> it is you just don't you just can't do it for a constructor so right. you either have to do like a a forced unwrap or um an optional and then you know you can argue whether that's an ugly way of doing it or not it's acceptable but it it's not as clean as if we had some other options and you can subclass ui storyboard and and do some injection that way but a lot of, a lot of times i'll just i have a root view controller that has a number of things and then i'll pass it into the other subcontrollers in the uh, prepare for segue and i just do that on down the chain and that's how i kind of do my dependency injection yeah and you can also have like an assembler object that assembles uh, your view controllers and injects what is expected in in the view controller there's a few different patterns that don't necessarily require uh, any dynamic language features it's just you're you're moving the the definition of what gets injected into some central place as opposed to it being reflected upon and and determined at runtime right so i think what we're leaning towards here is that give us reflection and we don't need to have any kind of dynamic typing yeah I, you know metaprogramming in, in ruby was always kind of this weird kind of magic. kind of magic or voodoo like there were some cool things that were accomplished with that like um you know you could create a pretty clean uh way of generating xml from a model object by just calling methods that don't exist and it would know okay i'm going to write that as xml or json uh to a file or to a stream or even cooler was active record where your class just said, I'm this database table, and it would introspect that database table and create the properties for you. Yeah. And so, I mean, there are some use cases where it was really handy, but uh, yeah, you kind of have to balance whether or not it adds a significant amount of conceptual overhead. Like, is this going to be readable and understandable by another developer, you know, six months from now, or even yourself six months from now? And in the Ruby community, that was especially difficult, especially in, in the early days when Active Record was really popular because six months, you're like three frameworks later. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you you never knew what field was in that table, so you had to go take a look at the table to, to go and decide, okay, it's first name, not certain, you know, not given name or or however the name is cased and all kinds of craziness. So I, I didn't like that about Active Record because I like to have the one canonical source of data. I think you know it's always a balance between the magic and the readability of of what you're programming. That you know sometimes these dynamic language features make it better. Sometimes it makes it harder. You know, yeah. burying a bunch of um, magic, you know, these KVC type of things for binding in an interface builder file or in core data uh, model definition can make it difficult to really understand what's going on. And core data is another example of Objective-C that has these dynamic language features that you, know, you 
can't really build core data with Swift as it is today. I'm very heartbroken about that, by the way. <laughs> uh, seriously, though, you could do something like a core data with Swift with some attributes and annotations and reflection. Yeah, but core data re relies pretty heavily on notifications and property changes. It relies not that you couldn't implement that in a non-dynamic way. Um, but you'd have to have, you know, essentially you've got kind of KVO style observing of property changes yeah. in order to, you know, in order for the framework to work, but also, you know, there's things you can do to listen to those changes, um, to build other type of behavior on top of that, like, you know, aggregating values from one table to, to an aggregate table. Uh, so you would have to build all that type of functionality. Um, and you would have to, you know, you, you could have an, just a generic NS managed object. You'd have to have, you know, a well-defined implementation of, you know, a static implementation of each table in Swift or rely Which, on dictionaries, I suppose. Yeah. yeah uh, not the dictionary approach, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> having a static class is not, or yeah, the base class is not the worst thing in the world. I've, I've used a YAP database with Swift and uh, if you couple that with the YAP database extensions library, you get, you can do all your classes as structs or all your models as structs. And then you implement a couple other, I think it's three other classes to actually do all your persistence. And it does get a little bit verbose, but it, it works pretty well. Yeah, yeah, and and I think generally speaking, most of these dynamic language features you can work around, uh, but it does potentially add more code, more hand coding, more coding that's specific to um, to each implementation. For example, like parsing JSON, you could create an object mapper that just reflected on the properties of your object and looked for those keys in the JSON file, or you know. Better yet, you had an annotation on each property that says what it mapped to, and just use reflection. So you never have to write a you know JSON parser again. It could just reflect on the object and map it for you. Yeah, which still that goes back to my point that that's metaprogramming. It's not dynamic programming. Now, if you did say codify that, so you into a concrete function at runtime, that's dynamic programming. Something like Active Record, when you do find by first name, what it does is it looks to see if that model object implements that method. Whether not really method, it's a message. If it handles that message, and if it doesn't handle that message, it generates it at runtime, and then calls it. And then there, every time thereafter, it calls that generated method. That's that's more of a dynamic programming versus a meta programming. Another example that Brent Simmons had, uh, which is a fairly practical example, is loading libraries dynamically into an app. And this is more more applicable to a Mac app, but if you want to have a plug-in architecture to your app, um, you know, Swift really can't do that today. You can't pull in a dynamically load and execute 
a plugin in Pure Swift. Is that because you can't reflect on it at all? Right. To see what, what methods it has that you yeah. understand? I mean, you could have a well-defined interface, but you know, I don't... For the most part, you can't have a truly um, dynamic plugin architecture where you could just drop a library into a folder. It could discover what's available and add that behavior. Yeah, that. I wonder how much that's used these days. I think it's probably any for you know a significant Mac app. I have to imagine that's a pretty common scenario for an iOS app. Obviously, we don't have the ability to dynamically load code, and it's just not an option. But you know, in, in Java, we had that all the time, and I, I'm sure a lot of other languages we you can load um, jar files uh, from disk. Do do add a, a plugin architecture into the application, and and that's pretty common, especially if you start getting into that microservice model, and you know that starts getting into another part of this argument of as we start talking about server side Swift, if it's really going to excel, it's going to need to have some of these features that server side developers have come to to rely on. You know, maybe debatable whether that's true or not, but um, I, I think Java is a great example where it's a strongly typed language but still has dynamic language features. Whether you like the implementation or not, that's a different issue. But um, you know, building well, the classes are still closed and you can't modify them at runtime. Well, you can with AOP. <laughs> <laughs> well. That's a load time, technically, but yeah, it's well because Java does have a lot of flexibility with class loaders, where you can modify the bytecode right. as it's being loaded into the VM, right? And reload stuff dynamically on the fly and all that fun stuff. There's yeah, and there's some like you know fairly popular micro kernels for Java in order to then dynamically load, unload, and reload services. Um, I can't remember what the the popular micro kernel is called, but Java Rebel or whatever? No, no. Um, it's more of a service bus type of thing. Oh. Mm. Not, There's a bunch of those. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but, you know, an app server might rely on that, you know, so you can dynamically load capabilities to an app server, um, which lets right. you kind of scale down or, you know, scale up the app server in terms of what its capabilities are. And you can well, do that. Tomcat. It, Tomcat can reload wars and yeah. It's not to say that's essential for server side Swift, but um, you know, I I suspect there's going to be these types of frameworks that people have built on other platforms that rely on dynamic language features. That again, without since we don't have the Objective C runtime in a non iOS or OS ten environment, you don't does it. Language features just don't exist. There's no way of doing that dynamic. Right. And, yeah, I guess it's safe to say that we don't need the full, full-on Ruby experience, but we need something closer to the Java experience where we can reflect on things and load things at runtime. Yeah. And, you know, we used to rely really heavily on duct typing in Objective-C. And 
you know, that's one of those features that we can mostly live without. You know, through protocols, we can get around that fairly easily. But it was kind of this cool feature that Ruby had that we had in Objective-C that as long as you respond to the selector, you were good. You know, you didn't have to right. implement an entire interface. And you could inspect whether or not uh, an object responded to a selector and, and decide based on that. And we use that probably more often than not, just in terms of um, um, versioning of features. Like, is it safe for me to call this method on this class uh, because I'm supporting multiple versions of iOS? Right. And they've kind of taken care of that with those compiler directives. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that works for the most part. The only place where that kind of falls down is when you're bridging to Objective-C code. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. guess I'm struggling a little bit with like, what has this, this big argument been about? I mean, Swift definitely is less dynamic than Objective-C is. Yeah. Um, but if you want dynamic stuff, you can still drop to Objective-C now. And they're slowly adding stuff in. So, so you know, I think it's a couple points is, you know, it's less of an argument. And there's certainly some people who have a more intense viewpoint than others. But, you know, Brent isn't really arguing. You know, he's not coming at it like, I'm not going to use Swift unless we have these features. It's more like, right. this is the right time to have this discussion. Swift is open source now. Uh, starting, you know, we're going to start looking at features for Swift 4. You know, what's the goal? Where's the language going to go? Do we need to have dynamic features or are we going to have a different paradigm for accomplishing some of these same goals uh, with with Swift and not rely on the Objective-C runtime like we are mm -hmm. today? Because, you know, I think a lot of people would be surprised at how much their pure Swift applications rely on Objective-C <laughs> to, to get things done. And yeah, they they really couldn't exist right now. Yeah, you know, there's no such thing as a pure Swift application on iOS. You know, you probably have could build a pure Swift command line or or um, server side, but you know, I I think Maybe. now is the right time I mean, to have, what about have the all conversation. The foundation stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. It's, well, it's also important to get this out in the open before the ABI gets locked down. Yeah, I was actually kind of surprised at how many people chimed in on it. Like, you know, Brent has a pretty good following and, you know, I've been reading his blog for years and he's got a lot of, um, a lot of perspective on the state of programming. And, you know, he certainly has his own opinion about how things should be done. And I don't necessarily agree every time, but I have a lot of respect for for the perspective that he brings, and and I think it's great that he started this dialogue. Yeah. He's got a great mix of like really old school Objective C or Apple programmers and uh, newer ones. So there's yeah. lots of lots of stuff to be stirred in the pot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's kind of my worry or wonder is 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 this a bunch of old guard Objective C mm -hmm. programmers coming into Swift finally because they they've finally read the writing on the wall. And then said, "Oh, it doesn't have this. I can't work with it. I really need this." And now they're speaking out. Yeah, I mean, we're we're programmers, and by nature, we're lazy. We don't like things to change. So if we've been using a specific pattern, you know, for ten, fifteen years, 
and we're like, I need to do something like I did five years ago in Objective-C, I want to be able to do that exact same pattern. And maybe right now there's not an exact way to do it in Swift. Right. right. Well, Swift doesn't necessarily have a well-defined set of idioms for mm -hmm. accomplishing some of these goals. And uh, yeah. yeah, if you recall, Brent had a similar discussion. It wasn't quite as heavily debated, um, but he had a discussion about the whole reactive programming approach and whether or not you know it was easier to read and more or less code than doing it the traditional way yeah and you know in a way this is kind of a continuation of that line of thinking of yeah get off my lawn no more like how should we be building these things and you know just because it's new doesn't mean it's better uh you know and, and the examples that were put out at the time for reactive programming it was actually more code and not necessarily more readable than you know some of the more traditional ways using these dy dynamic dynamic language features. Um, you know, take away the dynamic language features and um, some of the the ways that Brent or others would have approached it in a non-reactive programming way was definitely less readable or definitely more code. Yeah, and really, both these languages are Turing complete, right? You can do. Anything you can get, you can do in Swift. You can do some way in Objective C, and vice versa. Yeah, and I, you know, kind of go back like when they put Swift out there. It's supposed to be faster and safer. And in a lot of ways, it felt like, um, you know, they they put the training wheels on. Like, you know, we don't want you to hurt yourself, so we're gonna take away these dynamic language features and all the things that get you in the trouble. Uh, but if you really want to, we have this escape hatch called Objective C. <laughs> that you can yeah. drop back down to objective C and, and hurt yourself. You know, you, you can run with the scissors if you want, but, um, but we'd prefer you to, to play it safe. And I, I don't know. I don't know if Chris Latner or anybody else, uh, from the Swift team chimed in in this discussion. I'm sure that they're aware of it. And I think there was one developer who was working on reimplementing foundation. He talked about their experiences with doing NS coding in Swift, which does need some kind of reflective capability. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see if it if it's in the roadmap, if it's part of their vision to add these types of features, or if they really want to focus on that safety aspect and not not add these features to the language because it is easy to get yourself in the trouble. Yeah. There, there's probably a measured way of doing it. And we'll see what Apple gives us. And I guess we're not going to, we shouldn't expect anything wild and crazy for uh, Swift in a couple of weeks because we've already seen a lot of the previews. Yeah. I su suspect it's going to be more, you know, sometime around August or September, the Swift team should set some goals for, Swift 4. Uh, so we should at least yeah, know the general themes. I guess I wonder how that'll work in the open. I guess some of the bigger features for Swift 3, they've just kind of been written as proposals and by like the people who work at Apple and kind of went through the approval process. I guess that's how it'll come if there's some big dynamic change. Yeah, I would, I would hope so. Yeah, they did a nice write-up of what you won't see in Swift three, and you know, common things that 
that have been requested that won't make it for one reason or another, whether it's just not enough time or doesn't fit the goals or is in contradiction to other things that the language is trying to accomplish. Yeah. Um, I have to suspect there'll be some high level goals for Swift 4 and, you know, there's still a reasonably sized backlog of, of PRs and proposals out there. But like Swift 3 seemed to be focused on, let's clean out the, the language, get the Swift package manager out there, port foundation to Swift and make it usable on other platforms. And that's quite a lot to bite off in one year. And so if you haven't read any of the posts from Brent or any of the others on dynamic language features for Swift, uh, definitely go out and check out Brent's blog at inessential.com and, and you know read his side of things. And uh, he's done a pretty good job of linking to some of the other folks that have chimed in. So it, it's an interesting discussion and uh, one that everybody should follow if, if they're planning to program in Swift for the next few years because you know, we have a opportunity to influence the direction of the language for better or worse. Yeah, look what happened to PHP. I've got a funny story about that, <laughs> but I'll tell you guys some other time. <laughs> um, There's only sad stories about PHP. Well, I guess that's about all the time we have left this week. So uh, why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. And I'm at Sam Corder on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo, and you can find the podcast at Shared Inst on Twitter. Uh, check us out on the internet and check out show notes at sharedinstance.com slash 64. And uh, come hang out with us and, and chat about uh, what, what you think about Swift and all the dynamic stuff uh, by going to chat.sharedinstance.com. Oh, and one other thing. If you happen to be going out to wwdc in a few weeks argo and i will be out there and we'll be wearing our shared instance t-shirts so stop by say hi yeah we don't bite at least i don't <laughs> <laughs> I, I had my rabies shots <laughs> yeah all right see you guys later <laughs>